0: This is the Intuitive Leadership Mastery Podcast. What would it take for you to double your profits and half your stress with your intuition? Learn
1: how with your host, Michael Light.
2: Welcome back to the show. And today I'm talking with Raul Davis, COEO branding expert at The Ascendant Group. And we talk about why intuition really needs to be as commonly used as spreadsheets and how sports people use intuition and why that applies to leaders in business as well. And also look at how to use intuition when prospecting for clients and some wisdom that Napoleon Hill had on that many years ago. And how you can feel other people's rhythms when you're making sales or working with staff. And how to establish rhythm with staff. And why it's important that a leader helps other people change. And what would it take to make them change in your organization. And we also look at trust and imagination and how you can create trust in your team and talk a bit more in detail about branding and other ideas there. So enjoy the episode, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. I mean, the way I see it is, um, you know
0: how, I mean, right now, if a CEO said, said to you, oh, we don't use spreadsheets in our business, that's too newfangled and out there weird, You'd be like, "What the fuck are you talking about? Like, it's just a tool, you know. Of course, your staff are going to use spreadsheets, and I think intuition is going to be the same way in a year's time. You know, if you were a CEO saying, "Hey, oh, we don't use intuition in our business," you know, you'd be like, "What are you talking about? Do you not want an edge on your competitors?" <laughs> it's like, of course you use it because it's just a do tool you, and it, and do it works. You
1: find- do you find that people might be using it and just calling it something else? Uh, I think people do use it,
0: not everyone. You know, some people are like, you know, we only do decisions rationally. Um, but yeah, people do gut. They have the gut feeling. The thing is, they don't. They don't have tools to make it easier to use. You know, so right. some of the stuff I do is I like. Here are a bunch of ways you can extend this. You can get more on it you can use it in areas you may need not have even considered using it in so like yeah. you know if you're investing in different projects or uh, hiring you know how can you hire quicker without having to go through hundreds of resumes or have your staff go through hundreds of resumes right. for example how can you tell if a client is going to be an asshole or a good client to have and how much money you're going to make with them over the next year yeah you know these are all things you can get from your intuition if you ask the right,
1: oh yeah, point. no, I, 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 told, I a hundred percent agree with you. So,
0: but not everyone is doing that, you know. I, I, I think some people do that, but not everyone, and, and also even the people who do this, they don't always, they don't always feel comfortable sharing it with their staff, right? And just think how much oh, more I, powerful someone's I, company.
1: I personally don't mind sharing it at all.
0: <laughs> well, that's <laughs> good. That's probably why we're talking. <laughs> But that makes you, you know, that impairs the people who work in your team, right? If they, if they yeah. can be like, "Hey, it's okay for all of us to use our intuition, and we can all use these, you know, gifts that we have, we can build a much more powerful organization, and we can move quicker." Because that's the other reason for this, you know. I mean, you're probably aware that the world's changing a lot quicker these days than it used to ten yeah. years ago. I mean, it's going nuts, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was funny because I actually had this group called the Center for Organizational Effectiveness kind of do an assessment on our team and our strengths. And so going into it, I was assuming that um, one of the things was going to come out was that we were innovative, but that was not what came out. What came up was that we improvise. Mm. And I think and it actually ends it actually ended up being like the biggest core value amongst our most successful team members. And I I think when you're improvising, I mean, a lot of times you are layering in your your intuition. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. That's how you can say how to successfully improvise. You know, I mean, that's what good business people do. It's also what. You know, if someone's in the military, you know, you don't think of the military as being intuitive, typically, or I don't. But they really are when they get into, into an actual battle, you know. They're all like, let's follow the rules up until the moment they're in a battle and they're at war. And then it's the, it's the soldiers who are able to intuit that, hey, they're about to be attacked and they need to do something that survives.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a principle um, that I've actually kind of led our team by called uh, commander's intent. Basically, the commander sets the battle direction, but realizes that he's not always on the ground. So he has to trust his soldiers to be able to improvise and and use their intuition and and make the decisions that are the best real time. Right. And that's why that actually was what the German army
0: did in World War Two, which is why they fought far above their numbers. You know, they were right. much more effective as an army than you'd think from how many soldiers they had. Right. Um, because they would let the local commanders and the local soldiers, they could like, you know, they knew what was happening on the ground. The generals were too far away. So they were OK. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. same thing in business, you know, you can't micromanage your whole team if you've got a whole bunch of people. And right. even if you've only got a few people, it's still silly to micromanage them because why did you hire them if you weren't going to have them, you know, make smart decisions?
1: Yeah, I totally agree.
0: <laughs> so, cool. Um, so, you, you, your business is helping people out with publishing or you do other
1: things? Or I wasn't quite sure what you no. So, so what we do is CEO branding, and oh, and actual and and actually, um, this is funny because now I'm, I'm going to kind of give you a backstory, and you'll kind of see how intuition has played throughout the whole entire process. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, um, when I was in undergrad, I, um, you know, my freshman year, I partied. You know, I'm, I'm sure you probably did too. Uh, did you go to college? I did go to college, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you remember your freshman year. You're around all your friends and, you know, first time away from being from home. So I had a good time. End of my freshman year, I had this friend of mine who said, Hey, Raul, you should run for vice president of the campus activities board because you'll be able to throw all the parties on campus. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I go to I go to the, uh, the meeting and... Instead of nominating me for VP, he nominates me for president, and he had brought in all these people to kind of come in and vote for me because he knew that the bylaws the organization had had loopholes, so I accepted the nomination for president, I won, everyone hated me within the group because I'm the president, and I wasn't even in the group the year before, uh-huh. so... At this point, like, I had to make a decision of, okay, am I going to be serious and learn some leadership skills, or am I going to go for this year with everyone hating me? Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of feel my way through, not ever having had any experience leading an organization on any level whatsoever, on how to kind of convince people not to quit, how to Mm -hmm. convince people to believe in me and to um, to kind of see things through with the organization. So I surprised a lot of people, even the advisor of the organization, because she didn't have high hopes for me. And we had a pretty good year. So I had worked like behind the scenes and I thought that, uh, you know, doing the work would set me up to go into student government. I wanted to be the uh, secretary of judicial affairs for student government because I was going to go to law school at the time, this and that. So I run the election. I'm running against a member of a popular sorority, much less experienced than I had, but she slaughtered me. Because why? Because she's a sorority. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so, so fortunately, though, my reputation within at least the inner circle of student leaders was good enough but I got appointed to like an administrative assistant position within student government. So yeah. I learned my lesson and ended up being a lot more visible on campus that year. So I didn't only do stuff, but I made sure I was much more visible. So this was kind of one of my first lessons in branding. So I decided to run for um, VP of External Affairs that next year. And then, surprise, surprise, a football player decides he's going to run against me. Oh. So, what I ended up doing was there was another person running for the similar position, VP of Internal Affairs. She was a member of the sorority that caused my defeat last time. And uh-huh. she was running unopposed. And I said to her, I said, Laura. Let's be running mates. I will put your face all over campus. You don't have to spend any money. And, you know, you'll get more popularity on campus. She loved that idea. All her sorority sisters voted for me, so I pulled off the upset.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So now you help CEOs do similar things with that brand.
1: Correct. Yeah, I mean, so... So then that, that next year, I, I booked a speaker on campus, and what I said to the bureau we worked with, I said, I love what you guys do. Do you have any internships? They said no. And, you know, and for some reason, I said, can you give me one anyway? And, you know, can I chat with the CEO? So I chat with the CEO. I told her, look, I'll work on commission, and you guys aren't in the university circuit. I will help you get more established on the university circuit. So she agreed. I started calling my other friends at universities and student governments, and my big sophisticated approach was, use me instead of some old guy you don't know to book your speakers. Uh So, I started booking speakers at colleges across the country. Over the summer, I would do things like I would fly to Atlanta, visit every university in Atlanta work my way all the way through Alabama, Mississippi and to New Orleans and no appointments, just go in, meet with the student activities director, try to find the student groups and try to book speakers. Uh-huh. So and you know and be mindful, I've never had sales training or any of this sort of stuff in my life. Uh-huh. So did that for a few years. I actually became one of the top salespeople in the organization only while I was working ten to fifteen hours a week. Because no one else had even thought about the university circuit, and it was much easier than trying to book corporate gigs. Mm-hmm. So by 2004, I was in grad school at the University of Delaware, and two of the clients from the Bureau approached me. We, I had been working with them on a tour for about six months, and he said, hey, Raul, why don't you start your own company? We'll become your first two clients. Mm-hmm. So I said, hey, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so. I started a business then, you know, two thousand four and we started out just managing public speakers and so the, the innovation I did in the space was normally either as a bureau you were you were either like a bureau and you just book speakers by yourself. Um, um what I did was I kind of restructured the model and kind of treated the bureaus like a distributor. So I booked the clients directly. And then I also worked through the bureaus to also get them listed and booked as well. Mm. So I did that for a couple of years, worked with some cool entertainers, um, someone from the MTV's real world, someone from the apprentice, et cetera. um, And, what I realized in 2006 was what determined how much they spoke was their popularity or their brand. So that's when we went into personal branding, just a matter of necessity to help them increase their speaking engagement. So oh. we securing book deals and PR into the mix at that time. So did that for three years. Notice that there was a lot of talk now about personal branding. There were more firms talking about it. Peter Montoya put out a book on personal branding. And I thought, you know, maybe we need to figure out how we can innovate or differentiate more. And we had some CEOs coming into the company as clients. And I liked working with them more than entertainers anyway, because they're more sane, in my (laughs) opinion. Believe it or not. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I decided for us to focus on this idea of CEO branding. And when I researched it, there was only one company in the space at all. Mm -hmm. So we basically ended up being the kind of second entry into it. And, you know, the idea was, you think about what Richard Branson and Magic Johnson and Martha Stewart have done in terms of leveraging their brand to help build for business. How do we bottle that up in a formula? So where we landed was... You do it through PR, social media, book deals, securing awards, and starting it with a brand strategy that kind of aligns what the CEO's core strengths are with the companies. And mm-hmm. instead of trying to get the company PR, because a lot of times it ends up just being seen as advertisement, mm-hmm. By leveraging the CEO as a thought leader, you get the CEO on the CNBCs and all this sort of stuff, and they get to talk about the company anyway. Right. So that's what we've been doing the last seven years. Um, We are a member of the Forbes Agency Council for PR. We're a founding member, actually. Uh, We've won a number of awards in the space. We've expanded a bit globally. We have an office in Egypt now. We work mostly with mid-sized market CEOs, um, some retired athletes as well, and we've had several clients in China. Wow, that's great. So you help
0: them rebrand themselves so that they can be seen as a full leader, represent their company better, and get media okay. exposure.
1: Yeah, so how do you... So the, the three reasons you do CEO branding are one, to grow the top line revenue for your company. It's just kind of a better mousetrap um, Two, build what we call a portable brand. So if you think about like the Richard Branson's of the world, if you're seen successful in one area and known for it, people will assume your success in other areas. And the third reason is kind of a legacy building component is to be able to impact the world at a different level. People know get to become more familiar with the work you're doing, and that inspires others to do it. Cool. So you're, you're making the next Richard Branson, really? <laughs> That's the, well, I, I want to make the next them, but, you know, on rich, hopefully Richard Branson's level of popularity, yes. Wow. I'm seeing hundreds
0: of uh, people coming out of this. Yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> wow, okay. So where
1: where does intuition fit into this? Well, I mean, I think like most of it was intuition because I never studied any of the stuff. Mm. So it was it was intuitive for me to ask the CEO to give me an internship even though they don't have any it was intuitive for me to kind of make up a sales pitch to my colleagues at other student governments and even think I could sell without having any sales background and being a psychology and political science major. Um, It was intuition deciding to start the business and structuring it the way I did. And then over time, figuring out what type of ideation needed to make, needed to happen in the business to kind of allow it to continue because it was kind of like every time there was a potential to get stagnant, you know, trying to jump ahead of that because I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that if, uh, you know, they say that if water isn't running, it becomes diseased. <laughs> so you've got to have some type of continual flow Or that stagnation can kill you. Wow, that's a good quote. Is that your quote or is that someone else's? It's something I I read at some point. I can't
0: remember where I got it from. I'm sure I can find it. That's a good... uh, I'm just writing it down. uh, Cool. So really, you just uh, follow your intuition. You keep flowing and that helps your business be more successful.
1: Yeah, you've got to be willing to read situations, feel your way through them, and kind of anticipate the next hurdle you're going to run into or begin to see the signs of that hurdle and be willing to move before that hurdle smacks you in the face.
0: (laughs) That really sounds like a sporting analogy now.
1: A little bit, yeah. And I
0: didn't make that one. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's true for business too. If you're able to see the the issues before they become problems, then you can just keep your business running much more smoothly and less stressfully.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the single most the single most accurate sports analogy to a CEO is really a American football quarterback. I mean, because you have to make, you you, you you call a play in advance, but you have to read and make decisions real-time. And you're reacting to things that are unpredictable. You may think the defense is, is going to do one thing, but they do something totally different. And you mm-hmm. have to read the situation real-time. Mm-hmm. Right,
0: because you can't control what your competition it's getting up, exactly. or, or even what your clients need and, and want. Yeah, or what shifts happen in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know the the myth that you could do all this logically and rationally and like have a spreadsheet to figure everything out is, is just crazy because it's all there's too much information and it's all changing too quick.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that. What people can do, and I did find some benefit as I matured, I did find some benefit in this, is that I think there is some benefit to having a broad structure and definition. But you have to give yourself a room to be able to maneuver all sorts of ways within it. But I do think there's some benefit to having like a framework. I mean, like one of the things that kind of anchors me is um i you know i read a lot of the, the book of proverbs and the book of psalms in the bible because mm. the principles in there kind of help anchor me daily and allow me to kind of challenge myself to make sure i'm operating within the framework i said i wanted to operate within
0: so what what some you know if you got a passage from that you've, you you
1: read this week that helped you out somehow well i think um so one of my one of my favorite ones is that um there is this idea that there is a season for everything there's a there's a there's a a a time to cry a time to cheer and it kind of goes on I'll, i'll email it to you but i love that because i think what happens in our lives is that we are constantly moving through seasons and we don't have complete control of them. And because just like, you know, you, you have no controlling factor of when spring, summer, fall and winter come in the real world. And I think it works the same way in our lives. I think the mistake people make is they all want to get to summer, but the reality Mm -hmm. is we will all face winters and what you need to be willing to do is make each season of your life the best season. How can you have the best fall or the best winter or the best spring? And when it is summer, you better start building that harvest so that you can make it through the next fall and winter. Mm. Makes sense.
0: Um, I must admit, I'm also thinking, hey, if it's winter in the East Coast, I'm just going to go to Thailand. (laughs) Um, well, that's me. I'm i I'm a bit more, whatever, location independent. Um, so what, what about, are there any areas in your business, you know, like, I mean, some of the areas I've used intuition in a hiring, cause it's just, you know, hard to tell who can be a good person just by looking at resumes. You, you know, for me, I've got to get a feel for the person, um, I don't know if you have any any story or experience with that, it sounds like.
1: Well, I think, um, so for me, it's kind of um, client prospecting. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I look at is the, um, I guess it goes back to um, Napoleon Hill's concept in the, uh, what's the book? The Laws of Success, 15 Laws of Success. Where he talks about this idea of um, having agreeable minds, and so if I find myself in a situation with a potential client where it seems like they just kind of have this wall up and are not, they don't like share openly, and they offer like kind of a lot of pushback right away. A lot of times. I will kind of back off of those situations and, per, and and decide not to either pursue the type of opportunity mm-hmm. or if you do develop a proposal it is literally twice the cost of what it would normally be because I am basically accounting for the pain and suffering. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. That makes sense. And that either yeah. makes them back off themselves or or at least you're getting compensated
1: Correct. And, and and I think with most people like at some point unless they're just completely irrational you'll end up getting to a place of rhythm but mm. it's just it's just a matter of it takes more time, therefore it costs more and to ta- to get to that place of rhythm with some people than it does with others. And, yeah, I think that's a, that's a whole other concept is, I think, this idea of rhythm. I think life is a lot like dancing, you know. Uh, I think that you end up um, learning to follow the rhythm in life. Like, there's times where it feels like you are cutting against that and sometimes people don't listen to that and may go through with things anyway it ends up burning them big time mm-hmm. so when you kind of enter in that place where you feel like you're free flowing and you're in that rhythm things come together much better
0: what's an example of that that you've seen
1: i i totally so, get it but. Uh, so when I do um, when I do brand strategies for clients, like you know, we will spend four to six hours with them, uh, get the information, and you know there is there is some days where I can sit down and start developing that strategy, and I just don't have it. Mm-hmm. Like you know, maybe. I was up too late the night before. Maybe I've got something else going on in my life. And if I try to like just grind through that, it ends up producing really poor content. And and I have sometimes just said to a client, you know what, we need an extra week on this because the last thing you want to do is produce something that isn't going to be your best. Uh-huh. Whereas, you know, like you know, sometimes it may be I need to go to a beach, or you know, sometimes I'm just kind of in that rhythm, and then I can just flow right through it. And what normally might take 20 hours takes six.
0: Mm. So instead, if you listen to your your what's going on and feel the rhythm, you know that yeah, now's the time to rest, versus now's the time I can just get this material done real easy. I'm not fight against
1: that. Yeah, and, and and I think I think a really simple application that people can get of this is I think way too many people try to do complicated work late at night. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if you have if you have already worked for nine or ten hours and you're trying to do something that takes a lot of mental horsepower and you know you're kind of tired. You're being silly because it's going to take you three X time to get through it. Mm-hmm. And if you just took your tail to bed and started on it the next morning, you blow through it way faster.
0: Hmm. I mean, often I, I think that's very true. And often I get, you know, if I go to sleep, say, you know, thinking, oh, what will it take to get this thing done easy in the morning? You know, I'll get inspiration in the morning. Yeah, um, I mean, not only am I fresher, but I often have fresh ideas. Yeah, absolutely. So that is a, a great way to do things. Um, what about with, you know, you mentioned this but you like dancing. It, what I mean, you, you talk about your own rhythm, but also there's other people's rhythms too.
1: So. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that. Um, you know, like when you, when you bring people within the company, um, you've got to kind of get a sense for what's it going to take to establish rhythm with them. And, you know, it's not, it's not always just going to be like a microwave, right? It's not, you put it in this microwave for 60 seconds and boom, pop, it happens. Um, (laughs) You know, like you've you've got to understand what level of potential there is to establish rhythm and then begin to work your way through it. And I I have found that a lot of times the best way to do that is to kind of have the softer conversations with people like you really kind of get to understand what really drives them. What are their inspirations And when you can kind of find the commonalities between what drives you and what drives them, and you begin focusing in that area, you develop that rhythm much faster. I think the big mistake a lot of people make is that they just treat everybody the same. (laughs) And that just does not (laughs) ever work. Um, And, you know, like not to get. Um, Not to get too political, but I think the thing that hurts America right now is that as a country, we've lost our sense of empathy. Uh Like when you are able to demonstrate empathy with people, they're much more willing to listen to you and care about what you're saying. And you have a much easier time articulating and working through your differences at that point. I, um, I saw Joe Biden give the most interesting interview a couple months ago. He talked about how he, you know, him and, and Strom Thurmond and Jesse Helms obviously had very different views of the world at, at, at one time, especially when Helms and Thurmond were, were segregationists. But Mm -hmm. over time, um, getting to know each other over the course of decades, they came to be really good friends. I mean, Biden gave one of them ver eulogy. And Jesse Helms' children said to Biden, you know, we don't agree with half of what you what you agree, agree with politically. But we voted for you because we know you. We know your heart. We know that you care, that you want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Makes sense. Uh, so you know, I, one of the things I learned in sales is that all things being equal, people will buy from someone they like, and all things not being equal, they still buy from people they like. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So yeah, same thing in politics or, or getting people to change. You know, a lot of running a company is just convincing people that they, you know, to, to make a successful change in what they do. Yeah, um, that is correct. And, and, and generally, you know, by default, people don't like change. <laughs> correct. Um, so that's quite a trick, getting them
1: to uh, embrace change. How do you do yeah, that? in your we're we're, we're, mental, we're mentally wired to reject change, right?
0: <laughs> well, I think we I think we get wired at school. You know, <laughs> that's where we're taught change is dangerous. Maybe, but I, I think before we're like three years old, before we hit school, oh yeah, yeah, little, we don't care little kids ever. love new stuff. You know, they kids. yeah, no, I,
1: that's a very fair point. Yeah,
0: you're right. Um, but once we get beyond that and we've gone through education, it's like oh, you know got to learn something new that sounds a bit like might be a lot of work might be dangerous might be hard yeah right um so yeah what's your what's your secret to getting people to embrace change
1: um i I actually tend to want to show them that it's working first Mm. so If I am going to ask the team to make some sort of change, I tend to model the change first, have some progress in it, and then walk them through it.
0: Mm. So you're kind of leading from the front there.
1: Yeah, I mean, because I think that, um, oh, I know what the concept is, the objectionable mind. That's the word I was missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that you've got to be willing to kind of coax things in a way that you're removing the obvious objections that would typically come up. And you work people out of purely thinking with for analytical minds and beginning to work with for imagination. Mm. Well, that is
0: really uh, one of the keys to a successful leader. They they can work with their own imagination, but even more importantly, they can help other people to imagine how things might be different if they hired their company or how it might be different if we change the system inside the company. Um, Correct. Yes. So I'm working with imagination is really, you know, that is really dealing with. Your um, uh, intuition and the magical side of things, because it's not physical. Um, Correct. You know, and that's I, that's basically what your whole your whole business is built around brand strategy. Yes. Yeah. I mean, brand yeah. is not something you can like grab hold of. You know, it's all intangible.
1: Yeah, yeah. We have we have to get them the to buy into imagining that after we work with them, we're going to achieve some future state that doesn't exist yet. You're a genius, then.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's really hard to do, right? You've got to convince a client that you're going to work with this thing in in other people's minds that doesn't even exist yet, the brand.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and, uh, I think we've had some success in convincing them because we've been willing to commit to things that, I don't know of many other firms are willing to commit. So, for instance, we commit to a number of media placements. So, if we're working with someone for six months, we might say we guarantee a minimum of 30 media placements. If we're doing Facebook, we may say we guarantee at least 15,000 more Facebook fans. So... What I try to do with the business was kind of look at why people hate the industry in general. And a lot of people hate PR. They do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I try to think, well, why do they hate it? Uh And then I try to frame the business to overcome those objections so that what happens is that we are talking differently than the bad experiences you have had in the past. And if you're doing a competitive bid, the competitors are not framing it the same way we are. The, the analogy I use is that, um, you know, like when you go to a car dealer, you put down money, you expect to leave with a car. Mm-hmm. Like what our firms do and most in this branding category in general is you put down money, you might just get two wheels. <laughs> <laughs> You don't know. So we've tried to frame it like it is a product, like you're walking away with something more tangible at a minimum. Mm-hmm. You can wrap arms around it. Hmm. Well, that sounds like a great way to help people
0: understand what value you provide. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I it really occurs to me that a sales is a lot of sales is working with the imagination of of the client so they can get where they could be in the future um, and overcoming their own resistance to change. Um, And, and also their, their, you know, their fears about whether it's going to work or not.
1: Yeah. I I think the, the two words I would use are trust and imagination Mm. for those two things. You're good. So we we were talking about imagination.
0: How do you create trust in other people?
1: Well, I mean, so trust is basically demonstrating to them that you have the capability to do what you say you're going to do. And then also you are, again, different from what their previous experiences have been. So you're overcoming the skepticism that they naturally have. Uh, I'll tell you, for instance, what I do not understand about people who make cold calls is, Mm -hmm. like, why in a million years would you ever call an entrepreneur and say, can I speak to the business owner? Mm -hmm. Like, if you haven't taken the time to find out what my name is, Uh I'm not going to trust you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That... That, like, is an automatic red flag.
0: Right. But, I mean, the way to do a successful cold call is you do some research. And you right. don't need to find out their name, but you find out other points of connection. Uh, and what what maybe what pains they have, you can find out. There's a lot of things you can find out before you phone someone these days.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things you can find out to help develop rapport. And then also you 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 you, t- you know you got to start the conversation in a way that's disarming like if someone is picking up a call from a number that they're not familiar with these days they are com they they pick up the phone ready to be combative
0: mm-hmm.
1: so you, you immediately have to disarm them how do you do that well, I, I think it's just what you laid out. It's basically sharing things about the business. It could be having some other level of small talk. So it's going to be one of those two things or a combination of both.
0: And where does your, your gut feeling, your intuition come into that kind of conversation?
1: Oh, you're reading tone. mm because when a person picks up a phone mm-hmm. you can kind of tell where they are right away are they rushed You know, mm-hmm. did you catch them at a good moment and then you've got to flow through the rest of the conversation based on where their tone is heading mm-hmm.
0: so you're reading their energy, you're picking it up through their tone of voice their Correct. speed of speaking how engaged yes. they seem
1: but their tone is more important than what they're saying Mm -hmm.
0: yeah how much more important oh I would say 3x Mm. wow (laughs) so we spend so many people spend time on the phone and they're listening to the words and what you're saying is really they need to be listening to the tone uh, yes picking up the energy of the person correct And then what what do you do, you know, if you pick, if you're picking this info up, what are you doing with it?
1: Well, you're, you're adjusting to how much time you're going to have in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And based, based on that, you, you lead with your points that, so if, if you, if you know that basically this conversation is going to end in like the next two minutes, Mm -hmm. then you to go ahead and try to pull out your hook that is going to make them interested in either talking further in that moment or allowing you to get an email address so that you can follow up with them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's almost it's almost like you had
0: you know, you're you're at a dance and you met someone and it's like you want the next dance and they're like their body language is just not interested 've got a, you've got time for one dance and maybe you get their their number to dance further later or they they become engaged in the dancing and they want to continue dancing. yeah um, but if you're not paying attention to that then you're just gonna strike out.
1: yeah I mean and 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 you know and, and sometimes you got a situation where um, you know you you dance with somebody and then you decide, it was, it was kind of a good moment, and like you said, you may get the number, or you may decide that you're going to go to the bar and then come back later, because you left something positive with them, and the next time you communicate with them, they will remember that, and you didn't ask for the email, and you just decided you would, you would say, you know what, I'm going to reach out to you later mm-hmm. when we have time to talk more fully I've appreciated the three minutes you were able to give me right now mm-hmm. like if you if you get out ahead of that mm-hmm. that makes people feel like you get them
0: mm-hmm. back to the empathy yeah because I think there's a shortage of empathy in the world right now yeah that <laughs> is it that is it we're running a
1: deficit yeah. <laughs> Um, so you, so you're saying the world? I thought that was just an American thing. Uh, no, I think there's a shortage of
0: empathy in most Western countries, not okay. all countries. I mean, I think there are country. I mean, I'm in Thailand right now, and I'd say people are pretty empathetic and have time. You know, it's sort of like a, you know, if you if you take yourself back to the 1940s or 50s in America, where it was like the small town and people had time to say hello to people. Um which it, we don't seem to do so much anymore. you know there's more of that that happens in some countries. Um, I, I certainly see it in Latin America more and I see it in Thailand.
1: Um, yeah, you know, I, I I think so this actually makes me think of something different. So I, I think the other point related to empathy is being willing, to understand how people's backgrounds guide their behavior. Mm -hmm. Like some people, you know, initially are rude, not because we're even trying to be rude, but because it's just kind of wired in them from how they were raised. And Mm -hmm. if you can stand that initial layer of, of ugliness, and you're one of the 5% of people who can, you get rewarded big time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like our, um, our, um, one of our PR people, she, uh, 80% of my team cannot stand her mm-hmm. because she is very short in her communication. Like mm-hmm. she basically does not add a lot of color to her messages. She's very kind of bottom line oriented, mm-hmm. but you, the time to understand why she's like that, what type of work that work experiences she has had, um, what type of family situation, and as a result, she opens up a lot more to me than probably anyone she's ever worked with before. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think that I think that empathy thing drives not to just like individual situations in the moment, but it drives to trying to understand who people are. And I think even about America, my my, my biggest issue with people from other countries that criticize America is, yes, we're the most racist country in the world, but we're also the most tolerant. And we're the only country that has been brave enough to have this level of diversity. And, of course, there's going to be issues with it, it's been three hundred years, it'll probably take three hundred more for it to be smoothed out. <laughs> and can you imagine if China was even fifteen percent diverse, it would go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and South South Africa when you know, being being ten percent white, it went crazy. So yeah. like I, I think a lot of times We're just not patient, and we're not thinking through the bigger picture and kind of why things are the way they are. Well, and it's not just countries.
0: I mean, just within the United States, if you take people from different parts of the U.S., you know, if you if you take people from (laughs) New York and people from Atlanta and yes, you know, somewhere out west, you know, they all everyone has different ways of interacting. Yeah, they like different countries pretty much. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like 50 different countries all put together. Yeah. Which is sort of how it started, right? I mean, there were 13 different states and they all decided to get together. Yeah. Um, but even now, you can still feel, you know, I still feel that it, it is like almost a different country when you cross a state line. Um, yeah. Or, or even just between different cities, even within this, you know, Different cities, even within the same state, have a different feel to them.
1: Well, I mean, James Carville, I think it was, famously said, in Pennsylvania, you have Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and then Alabama in the middle. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, that kind of makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) I was just trying to see Alabama being slid up, you know, and fitted in to
1: Pennsylvania. (laughs)
0: <laughs> but it, it's true and being able to to pick that up and be able to work, you know and be empathetic with different people just makes you much more powerful as a leader yes
1: uh, it, it, it makes people open up more I, I, I run an anonymous political blog i'll actually give it to you um presidential ticker Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't put my name on it because I don't want clients to know, you know, political stuff I'm doing. And then also, you know, because I'm behind the scenes, if I have like a commerce place or something, it doesn't matter. Um, but I have Trump supporters, Clinton supporters, Sanders supporters, everybody on the page interacting with each other. And sometimes it get it gets ugly. Mm-hmm. But what I try to push people towards... Is understanding each other. So when someone makes an, a really ugly comment, I kind of ask them, "Well, why do you feel that way? And have you considered this perspective?" And it doesn't matter which side we're on. I try to push people towards empathy. So I don't take a partisan stance. I just take. I just try to push people towards thinking of of what's the other perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so you're helping people be empathetic. I'm
1: trying Yeah. It's it's kinda of brutal though. <laughs> why why is it brutal to, to get people Uh because I be because active? I think that I think that this election has just made people callous in a way uh, that I haven't I haven't seen in my lifetime before. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe we have to go really down in order to come back up. You
1: know? Yeah, I mean, but the but, but one thing I say about people who get really upset with Trump is I say, don't get mad with him that he just took the lid off of a garbage can. He <laughs> kind of showed us where our country really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bit of a... Smart, and and to your man. point... Yeah, I mean, to your point, you've got to uncover it before you can deal with it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, no
0: one's really wanted to deal with the garbage can. They just want to kick the garbage can.
1: Right. (laughs) Right. Right. um, But
0: that is, you know, helping other people express empathy for each other is a pretty big skill. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to be able to be empathetic yourself. Um, but helping others to be empathetic is another le- level on that
1: yeah I, I once was working with, um, with a, uh, a couple of young millionaire African American clients and this guy from Tennessee just basically started talking about these niggers are going to lose their money and blah 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 and just like nasty and so I said, you know, thank you for writing me. Um, you know, here's some additional things to think about. They actually have worked very hard, and we went back back and forth a couple times. And uh, and, and I even said him one of emails, I said, you know, I'll be praying for you. Mm-hmm. And then he emailed back, and he was like, you know what, man, I'm sorry. You're talking about praying for me, and I'm being a complete jerk what happened was one of my friends got raped by two African-American guys and they got off and it's made me very bitter. Mm. And so he, uh, he thanked me. We engaged a couple more times and who knows, maybe I prevented him from one day committing an act of violence because he calmed down, you know? So you don't ever know how, what you do ends up impacting people. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and how you you know what you pick up and how you say things can totally change uh, how they interact and their energy. Yeah, how, how do you deal with that when you've got someone who's you know maybe a little aggressive or confrontive?
1: Uh, you you do? gotta you gotta be willing to assume. That they aren't pure evil, <laughs> so that is the baseline. No, it really is. Like, no, it makes sense. because you know that you, they aren't like Charles Manson, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you end up finding yourself justifying why or stupid, then you won't have a reason to engage with them. So, I would rather find out what is driving what <laughs> driving them, and then work from that place. Mm-hmm.
0: So realize that they are You know They are also spiritual beings Having a human experience
1: and Yeah And we're just struggling with it In some sort of way And we all struggle mm-hmm. And then you can have more empathy For
0: for them And, and that opens up More communication Yeah Yeah, makes sense. Um, so, any any other things on this intuition that you picked up and you? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, I mean, I think you also kind of nailed it a lot, where you talked about kind of tapping into, you know, that spiritual side of you. I mean, you know, I I happen to believe that the Big Bang didn't create itself. You know, mm-hmm. some force had to set that in motion, and. I think that if you are a person that's come to that conclusion, you owe it to yourself to spend a part of your life figuring out how to tap into that force, Mm -hmm. whatever you believe it to be. Mm -hmm.
0: So this can help your business to be more successful and easier to run.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I I think that, you know, whether it's um, Henry Ford or... Napoleon Hill, I mean, I think you find examples of people who were willing to kind of do that, and you've been able to see the impact it's made for them. I mean, like, you know, if you're, I mean, just think about Dr. King for a second. I mean, how could he deal with that level of anger all the time? It was nothing but his ability to tap into that spiritual side. Without it, he would have just been angry all the time.
0: Right, and he he wasn't, you know, or at least yeah. outwardly he didn't come across as angry. I mean, he was passionate, but he didn't, like, take it personally. Correct. Right. Which, and uh, that, that's quite a skill. Yeah. Just imagine if you'd been around back then and you could have been his personal brand advisor.
1: Uh, he was, he, he was one guy who did, who, who, you know what I tell a lot of people, it's funny. So um, they, um when Colin Kaepernick was doing, you know, like his protest deal, um, I basically did a post on Facebook about something I thought he should change because like from a branding perspective and people were like, oh, well, you know, it's not about branding. And I said, What do you think Dr. King was doing when they had Rosa Parks sit on the bus like that? That was planned. They planned that for months. Mm. The reason they planned that was because they realized that people would think it was outrageous that you're going to take an elderly black woman and make her move. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was was strategy. Branding is about how you drive the narrative and perception. Mm -hmm. So... There is strategy in, in those sort of things. The social causes that deploy the best strategies end up winning the game.
0: Mm-hmm. That's. Um, I mean, how do you fit? How do you get what the best strategies to to you know, promote whatever movement you have is, whether it's political movement or it's a business movement because the best businesses really are you know they're not just selling a service or product they're helping create a movement
1: so um okay so my mentor in branding is a guy named Chris Collins he taught me this very simple concept you have two choices you can get branded or you can get labeled Hmm getting branded means that you're putting out a message that you want people to identify with so you're you're influencing the narrative. Being labeled means that you just let people make up stuff about you. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to what Trump did he labeled the hell out of Jeb Bush. When he mm-hmm. called him full energy he buried him. Mm-hmm. And the reason he buried him was because Jeb Bush had not built a brand that could withstand that, and he didn't know how to recover from being labeled. Mm. And then the the thing that you've seen kind of in the general election is many times Trump's greatest strength has become his weakness. When he is branding himself correctly, he wins. When he allows himself to be labeled, he loses. (laughs) I mean, it's it it really boils down to that, and you can study the trend lines with the polls. It's very simple. When he says something stupid, or some story comes out about him, he's down. When he when that doesn't happen, he goes back up. Mm-hmm. It it really is that simple with branding.
0: So the key to branding your your business and yourself is that you get your story out and are clear about who you
1: are instead of being labeled by others and, and you find and you find people and you find the people who are most likely to receive it mm-hmm.
0: So really you're polarizing the market. you know some people are going to like the truth the authentic you and other people aren't and that's okay. And that's that's better than. Well, that yeah, anymore. I mean, so
1: some people, well, some people will like it, and then what happens is when most people start liking it and they start talking about it, other people catch on as they pig, piggyback on. hmm So what what Steve Jobs understood was that, and, and you know, like when he was having this the the this the uh, debate with Waz about having an open system versus having a closed system was he wanted to have a closed system because he wanted to have something that was unique in the marketplace. And he felt like he could drive something in the marketplace that a small group of rebellious people would catch on to because it's different from everything else out there. And that small group of people would start sharing it with others. And that's exactly the way it played out. Mm-hmm.
0: So he had a clear brand it it was clear and by brand people knew what he stood for is that
1: what what a brand is so I think think what was kind of interesting about him was I don't know if people necessarily knew what he stood for I think what they knew was that he was creating something that was different and the people who levitated to liking things that were different just began to identify with that company and with his brand. Mm-hmm. So he tapped into an emotional cord that was very powerful.
0: Right. He had a very strong. I, mean, I remember that ad that they did in 1984. You know, the famous one. Hello. There. Yeah, you still hear me? Yeah, yeah, that famous ad they did in nineteen Apple did in nineteen eighty four. Yeah, the, yeah, that that,
1: the that ad was not for the masses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that ad was not for the masses. It was for a small group of people to latch onto and then to spread it to other people. It was for the
0: people who believed in creating something different.
1: You know, when uh, th- did you ever watch John Stewart and Stephen Colbert when they were on back to back? Yep. Yeah, I did. So, what the two of them, yeah, yeah, what, what the two of them were able to put together in terms of being able to infuse comedy and news and really, really kind of connect with people emotionally. I mean, they they basically accomplished, and I was one of the people. There are a lot, lot of people who they got their news from the two of them, mm-hmm. and it was because. Of the level of candor that they that they both offered, and infusing it with humor, with uh, humor, and so, and the fact that they were doing something very different—it was out of the box of, of the matrix, right? And I, I think that you know sometimes what intuition drives down to is it's it's basically how do you escape out of the matrix? <laughs> So,
0: yeah. How do you use intuition to escape from the matrix?
1: Yeah, I mean, so like, um, you know, like if you think of um, if you think of NASCAR, all the cars are very high performing. The thing that's different about them is the driver. Mm-hmm. So you have to realize that it is your individual kind of talent and thought that is the most unique thing and everything kind of gets burped out of that so you can't always just say you're going to follow some sort of model because if you follow the model then you're just following conventional wisdom and guess what conventional wisdom is usually wrong otherwise everyone who followed it would be pretty darn successful Mm mm-hmm
0: so, what you need to you can have a model, but you need to use your intuition to adjust the model to fit what's going on with the other people.
1: Yeah, and I think, think, I think, like, if I were you, but maybe the biggest point I would make about intuition is it's the only thing that drives differentiation. <laughs> mm. tell, tell me, was like, tell me more. If people, yeah, I mean, so how do how do people usually come up with all these ideas? It's because something usually hits them, they don't even know how it hit them, and they ended up just deciding to go with the flow and bring it, and bring it to life. Mm-hmm.
0: So that that's a way to have more creativity in your company, and also have it flow better.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. You know, your 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 intuition is how you gain your competitive advantage. Because if you just see, like, a hundred years ago, you could just just rely on the strength of your product or your service. But in today's world. Technology just grows so quickly, and innovations happen so often that you cannot just rely on a product. Mm-hmm. If you just let, if you let that be a differentiator by itself, you're gonna get you're gonna get beat by your competitor at some point. It's inevitable. The world has just changed too much. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, they say that um, the number of inventions we had in the last hundred years, we we in the last. 40, in the first fourteen years of this century, we've had as many inventions as we did in the hundred years of the last century.
1: Yeah, and then guess what? Eventually, we'll move to a point where seven years equates to that hundred. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: <laughs> it's just getting faster and faster, and you, could, you right. just can't. The the only way to keep up is to use your intuition to to be able to navigate through it. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it's sort of like a hundred years ago. We were dancing in slow motion, and you could plan things out a bit better uh, ahead of time. But now we've got, you know, now we're dancing in real time, and you, you, you. If you don't want to step on your partner's toes, you, you've just got to follow the energy.
1: Yeah, I mean, but the issue with. Um with uh, and his last thing, I'll let you go. Is with um, with Trump's slogan of "Make America Great Again." Is I tend to say more so, let American politics be great again because there used to be a time where more empathy was involved. But his issue, the issue of him saying "Make America Great Again," is, is that the jobs are never coming back. A lot of them, they just can't come back because structurally, with robotics and AI and some of the other things that have gone on. We're just getting more efficient. So the workforce has to be retrained and people have to understand they have to be able to learn how to tap into her intuition because it's be the retrain up in your intuition and learning how to build your personal brand. That is going to be what's successful in this kind of next workforce revolution we're going through. The millennials, I think, are positioned fine for it. I'm more so concerned about the Gen Xers and the um, the baby boomers. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, because they they may not be quite as nimble on their feet.
1: Right. Yep.
0: Um, and there's a lot of change happening in the workplace. I mean, you know, there's someone I know, uh, Taylor Pearson, he he wrote a book called The End of Jobs, which you know talks a bit about. Um, this change, the traditional jobs, a lot of them are going away, and they're re- really the only way to have security. Yeah, is to I mean, have your own business.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the conversation that needs to be had, but it's just not a popular conversation for people to engage in. There, there's a, uh, there's, there's an episode on uh, South Park called Member Berries, and it's about these little berries that they basically keep talking about the good old days and the symbolism in it to me was that a a lot of times with the baby boomers and the Xers they get just very stuck on how things used to be and they wanted to go back that way but we don't have a time machine sorry
0: (laughs) well we are all in one (laughs) big time machine but it's set go (laughs) forward
1: yeah it only goes forward, correct?
0: It <laughs> doesn't go back. <laughs> that is correct. Cool. Well, it's been great talking right, with cool. you, Raul. I hope This was very useful. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. I, I can hear you. I, I don't know whether the sound, the sound okay. seems to be going in and out a bit.
1: Um, I can yeah I, can I just I hope it's helpful, and forward to um um touch base with me when the book's like complete and let's see if we can figure out a way to work together and and approach some traditional publishers if you're interested in it
0: yeah i i'm happy to share the book with you you know as it comes out i'd love to get your feedback on it i I think you might find it an interesting read um and yeah yeah. (laughs) maybe there's some way and and you can read some of the chapters that are out in that facebook group already um Okay. The, okay. You know, I, I'm sure there's some we, we we met for a reason, and I'm sure there's some way you know we're going to help each other out um, in the future. So, um, you know, much. you know, I can tell you do really cool stuff. Um, and all right, I appreciate it, my friend. Thanks so much. Hey, have a great rest of your Thursday, man. All right, you too. Right. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.
2: Get strategies and show notes at intuitiveleadershipmastery.com. What would it take to see you here next
1: time on the Intuitive Leadership Mastery Podcast?